In Romans chapters 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul takes on a pressing question. If Jesus was the King of the Jews, why didn't Israel accept him? Paul is often accused of being anti-Semitic. In fact, he loved his people more than you can imagine. For many Jews today, Jews for Jesus is an oxymoron. The Apostle Paul was definitely a Jew who was for Jesus. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins our study by taking a look at Paul's heart for his Jewish family. How many of you have ever had a relative come over to your house and they're supposed to say it's a few days and they end up staying week after week after week? And you're getting up every morning, you're going out and you're working hard and your relative just sits there and they're enjoying your food, they're enjoying your TV, they're enjoying your bed, and they feel entitled. And I'm, I'm seeing some of you smile. Anybody ever had that happen? But I just talked to one of my friends. He said, I just can't believe it. My relatives are right here. And they feel entitled. That's what the word entitlement means. The idea is that a person that feels entitled is they feel, I have my right. Because I was born into a certain family or because I'm related to you in some ways that I have this entitlement. And it's all over our society. And one of the ways to tell whether you have the spirit is when you get angry, when the person that you feel, hey, I'm really entitled to getting so-and-so and so-and-so, if you get angry when they don't come through, like some of your relatives, when you tell them, hey, you got to get out of here, you got to get a job and make it your own way, when you take away the entitlement, when they get angry. Well, you all know entitlement economically and your family and stuff, it really enters into religion. Probably some of you can think of somebody right now who feels that because they were dedicated in a certain church or a certain synagogue or a certain mosque and they become part of a certain group of people that they are the in-group. In fact, there's all different ways of expressing that. Like in the Mormon faith, for example, there's a very elaborate initiation ceremony that you go through after you have a presentation on the outside of this real wholesome family atmosphere. Then they draw you in and you'll go through an elaborate ritual in order to become a part of that. Uh, there's all different kinds of clubs that you can go to. Like at Yale, you know, you've, you've all heard of Skulls and Bones, and they'll put you through an elaborate ritual. What you need to understand is that that's a very powerful attraction to you, to feel like I'm part of this group. And usually in religion, it has to do with a, a physical birth, that you're part of a particular nationality. Uh, for example, if you're Polish, it's connected. I'm Polish, I'm Roman Catholic. If you're Serbian, I'm Serbian and I'm Orthodox Serbs. And that has tremendous ramifications culturally. And the idea that I'm born in this certain group. And then there's the idea that I do certain rituals. I worship in certain ways. And that makes God entitled to me. Now, in the first century, there was a group of people that felt that. And it wasn't that all the people felt that. In fact, I want you to understand, contrary to what most popular belief is, in the first century, the belief that Jesus was the Messiah started out among all Jewish people. It was all Jewish people. The 12 apostles were all Jewish. At Pentecost, they were all Jewish that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, the whole beginning of the church in Jerusalem starts out with all Jewish people. The Apostle Paul was one of those Jewish people that not in the first wave of accepting Jesus the Messiah, 
but he talked about himself being like born almost late because on the Damascus Road, as he went to persecute believers, this Jewish man that spent his early life, I'm proud of my Jewish birth. I'm proud that I'm a son of Benjamin. I'm proud that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm proud that I studied under Gamaliel. I believe that I, by obeying the Torah and by keeping the law, I make myself right with God. Paul spent the early part of his life really committed to that, zealously committed to that. Then he met the Savior with the nail print in his hand, and his life forever changed. The Apostle Paul realized that this incredible man named Jesus, who, by the way, was Jewish, we're going to learn, and Paul's going to emphasize that, Jesus was Jewish, and Paul became one of the very first Jews for Jesus. In fact, in the first century, he was the most prominent Jew for Jesus, Now, to be honest with you, your popular culture today doesn't think that there should be any Jews for Jesus. And I want you all to be very aware of that. We live in a culture that has the idea that you're a Christian. How many of you would say, you know, if you're asked by the government, what religion have you? How many of you would check off Christian? Raise your hand. Almost all of you in the audience would do that, okay? Back in New Jersey where I was raised, a whole bunch of my friends would check out Judaism. Now, if you live in the city of Detroit a large number of people would check that they are Muslim. They would check off that they're Muslim, okay? Your culture is becoming very diverse. Back where I was just a few weeks ago, in Fletching, New York, there are the most diverse religious community probably in the world. There are Hindu temples. There are Buddhist places to worship. There are Jewish synagogues. There's all different brands of, of Protestantism, okay? So you live in a very diverse culture, and the basic idea is that everybody has their way to get to heaven. And the idea is that you join that group, and then you follow their ritual, you get right with God. What I want to understand, basically one of the ideas when it's applied to Judaism, when it's applied to Christianity, is that Jesus is for Gentiles, Moses is for Jews. And what I want to understand is that the historical Moses and the historical Jesus would never believe that lie. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. One of the things really important in our church family is we want you to get in to this first century document. Whether or not you've received Jesus as your Messiah yet, many of you have, but if you might be on the way to really thinking through who Jesus is, one of the things that I want to really challenge you to do is you need to really think through what the first century documents actually said about who Jesus was. The Apostle Paul, who is Jewish, as we open up to Romans chapter 9, we're going to find out that the author of this book is Jewish. A lot of people forget that. He's also going to tell us that Jesus was Jewish. Our Savior was Jewish, and he remains a Jew. He will be a Jew forever and ever and ever. Jesus, according to his human nature, was Jewish. And if Christians forget that, then our culture does some really evil things. In fact, you need to understand that in the history since the first century, in the first century, Jews persecuted this new group, beginning with all Jewish people that started to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Jews started out, they were in the power position, and they persecuted Christians. So, for example, Stephen, who was Jewish, preached before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and they stoned him because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, the man that wrote the book that we're studying now, the book of Romans, every city he went to, when he went to a city, he'd speak in the synagogue, 
and about half the synagogue would believe that Jesus was the Messiah and would join Paul as a Jew in accepting the Messiah. The other half would stone him. And I'm using the numbers loosely, understand, but he divided his Jewish brethren. By the end of, about 300 years went by, and the Gentile element that was believing that Jesus was the Savior that died on the cross, that resurrected from the dead, that movement had swept the world of the day. So much so that it became the dominant political and cultural force in what used to be the Roman Empire. Then we start having a history that Christians exclude Jews. And that ultimately leads to a rising anti-Semitism that's anti-Jewish. And all of my Jewish friends that I was raised with in New Jersey knew all about what was called Russian pogroms, where the Russian czars would hold villages, would rise up and wipe out Jewish people. And my Jewish buddy would know all about that. They would say, Dave, how could you ever ask me to believe in Jesus? Because I have a relative that died in the Holocaust. And don't you know that Luther said some anti-Semitic things against Jews? And don't you know that German theologians used the New Testament to argue against Judaism and against Jewish people? And that led to anti-Semitism. You need to understand that that's part of the culture that you're a part of. What a lot of people want to say that it leads to is that we need to just remember that in today's world, Jesus is for Gentile people, Moses is for Jews, and Muhammad is for Islamic people. What I want to get across to you this morning is that if you're going to follow what the Scripture teaches, that you're going to have to believe that Jesus is the Savior of Jewish people and Gentile people and Methodists, and Presbyterians, and all different brands of Protestants, all the Roman Catholic groups, and Roman Catholicism also breaks down into many different groups within it. We're going to talk about a Savior that's for Buddhist people. He's a Savior that's for Hindu people. And I want you to understand that that goes totally against what is the commonly accepted approach to religion in the world today. But you need to listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul says. And what I want to do in our church family is we want to really follow carefully what the Apostle Paul is saying. In Romans 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with a really serious problem. It might not seem to be a serious problem to you, but it is. You see, Paul claimed in Romans 1 that he's presenting a gospel about Jesus that the Old Testament prophets predicted So the Apostle Paul's claim is, if you study the Old Testament, if you study the Old Testament carefully, it's going to lead to the Messiah being born of a Jewish mother, and that Messiah is going to be Jesus. Paul claimed that that's what the Old Testament leads to. He also, like in Romans 4, he says, Father Abraham, who's the primary founder, the founding father of the Jewish nation, He says, Father Abraham got right with God because he believed in this coming Messiah. And what Abraham believed in this coming Messiah ultimately culminates in Jesus. In Romans 4, he also used the life of David, who was the great king, the great Israelite king. He says, David was born into God's family. He was forgiven, you might say. He was able to not be killed for his murder and for his adultery because he trusted in the Messiah. 
the ultimate son of David that would come. And that's the only way he received forgiveness. In other words, what I want to whet your appetite for is the Apostle Paul would go into a Jewish synagogue and he would use the Jewish scriptures to show that it ultimately led to Jesus. If you go to a religious class in university today, they're going to tell you that the Old Testament story doesn't lead to the New Testament, that it leads to Judaism, and that's completely separate. Among a lot of you, like if I were to ask you, the covenants, the temple worship, what book of the Old Testament talked about the glory of God coming down? There's a lot of you in this audience that couldn't tell hide your tail what I was talking about. We're dumbing down the way that we teach Christians. We're dumbing down the way we teach everybody. And suddenly what's happening is nobody really knows much of anything in our society. And I want to challenge you because I don't want to sell you short. The Apostle Paul, as he teaches in Romans 9, he can assume that if he just mentions covenants, you think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the new covenant of Jeremiah. He assumes his audience can do that. And what I want you to say is, well, Dave, I can't do that now. And I want to encourage some of you. Some of you have just come to know Jesus. And so I wouldn't expect you to know that. But if you've known Jesus very long, you need to get really serious about understanding the revelation that God has given you. And that's part of your intimacy with the Lord is learning those things. Let's look at it because Paul, first of all, begins with his incredible heart. And the very first thing I want to attack is that Paul is often viewed as being an anti-Semitic person. And he's the one that started this idea that Jesus needed to be accepted by Jewish people, but Jewish people weren't going to accept it. And therefore, he produced all this anti-Semiticism, and he's a bad Jew. Some of my buddies I was raised with would hold Paul was an anathema Jew. He was a excommunicated Jew, and that he didn't really love his people. What I want you to see is that that's just dead wrong looking at the historical sources. How many of you have unbelieving relatives? Anybody have unbelieving relatives? How many of you would say, Jesus, I'll go to hell if my relatives will just come to know you? Now, you talking about love and you talk about passion for people, that's the kind of passion the Apostle Paul had. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Because the big question Paul's going to begin answering in Romans chapter 9 is, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why didn't the majority of the Jewish people in the first century receive him? And that was a big issue. And it's still an issue today. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why didn't the Jewish people accept him? And the Apostle Paul is going to begin to wrestle with that so you can begin reading through these chapters and we'll be able to find out how Paul answers that question and is there a future for the Jewish people? Let's read chapter 9, verses 1, and we'll read through verse 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I want you to feel the heart of Paul. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit confirms what, what my conscience is saying. In other words, Paul's underlined. I want you to listen. It's really true what I'm going to tell you. I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Feel Paul's passion for his people. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, that I were cut off from the Messiah, when you read Christ, if you read the Messiah, it'll help you understand more of what the early Roman believers would hear when they heard Christ. I would be cut off from the Messiah, which Paul believes in this book is Jesus Christ, for the sake of my brothers, that would include his Jewish people, those of my own race. See, Paul tells you who he's talking about. My own race, the people of Israel. Now, what's the advantage that the Jewish people have? Theirs is the adoption as sons. 
There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever. Praise. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins this section really sharing from his heart. The Apostle Paul is a very personal, he's a very passionate man, and he's a Jewish man. And he begins by telling us, I'm going to speak the truth. And one of the things I want to begin with this morning is you live in a society that doesn't believe that anyone can speak the truth. You live in a society that holds that everything is relative and there isn't such a thing as truth. And I want you to know that that's a lie. You're also going to be taught that truth isn't just propositions. It's not just two plus two equals four. That truth has to do with the way that a person interprets things because everything's always interpreted by a person and what you're going to be taught is well that leads to nobody really knows what i want you to understand is that the bible says that there's an ultimate person and his name is jesus and he is truth embodied in a person so what paul is saying is i'm going to tell you the truth so you need to decide you're going to hear professors You're going to hear other pastors. You're going to hear other religious leaders. All the rest of your life, you're going to be exposed to other teaching, and you can decide what you believe is true. What I'm telling you this morning is, I believe that truth is in relationship with Jesus. I believe that there's an ultimate person that's come that says, this is the way things really are. So, for example, a lot of people tell me God never really has spoken clearly. In other words, we've got the Bible, we've got the Quran, and we've got the Old Testament books of Judaism. We have the Bhagavad of the Hindu religion, and who knows who is which. In other words, maybe God's spoken in all of us. We're going to find out today that Paul believes that that real God's been speaking from the beginning of time. He's been speaking to a particular group of people, and those particular group of people were supposed to speak to everyone else, and they didn't do a great job in doing that, but they did an adequate job. And you live in a society today where it happens to be that God who speaks to us and it culminated in his son, who Paul, I just read to you, Paul believes is God, that the God of creation, the God of the universe has been speaking and he ultimately spoke It all culminated in his son that's coming. So the idea is that there's Jesus the prophet, there's Muhammad the prophet, there's Moses the prophet, that idea which is so popular today and they're all relatively the same. Paul is saying, no, that's not the way that it works. Paul is saying that truth is found in Jesus. And my whole faith rests in that. In other words, like if I were to die right now, and suddenly I'm in the great nirvana of Buddhism, then I blew it. I believed a lie. Jesus was a liar. I don't believe that will ever happen because I believe Jesus really is dependable. I believe he's true. And Jesus told me that if I trust him, he would give me eternal life. Every person that you meet is deciding who tells them the truth. So I want to challenge you. Like the whole basis of my life is that from the time I've been a little boy, I've been listening to the revelation of the Bible. And and if there's a God that's out there, I ask him, Lord, you should speak to me. And he also shows me, as I meet different people, how I determine this person telling the truth, that person's a liar. And the more that I listen to Jesus, and the longer that I live, the more that I understand, if Jesus didn't tell the truth, then nobody else ever told the truth. 
because truth is found in Jesus. Now, what's the truth that Paul has underlined? The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not lying. My conscience confirmed in the Holy Spirit. Your conscience, when it's not connected with the Holy Spirit, can be filled with a bunch of things that aren't true. But your conscience, according to the Apostle Paul, when it's connected with the Holy Spirit, becomes a reliable guide. Remember in Romans 8, we've learned a whole lot about let your thinking be conformed to the Holy Spirit. We've learned a lot about be guided daily, walk by the power of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is giving an illustration of this. He's saying, what I'm going to tell you, and he is an apostle, so he's really connected with the Holy Spirit, but what he's telling you is that I want you to know I'm going to talk to you right from my heart, and the very third person of the Trinity is going to confirm in my conscience that what I'm telling you is the truth. It's reality. That's what truth is. What is always true and always will be true. It's what is real, what really happens, what's really true, what you can really count on. Now, what can we really count on the Apostle Paul is going to talk about? He says, I want you to know that I had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What was Paul so upset about? A lot of people have an idea that the Apostle Paul is like this cold, vindictive, a person you, you, you want to listen to teach on Sunday morning, but you sure wouldn't want to be his friend. I want you to know the Apostle Paul, if he were here today, would be hugging on all of you. He would be greeting you. He would be personal with you. He would get to know your names. You say, how do you know that? Because we're going to end this book with this Apostle Paul. He has never even been to the Roman church, and he already knows over 60 of the people really so well that he's going to say, hey, don't forget to say hello to so-and-so, 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 because I'm going to get there soon, and I want to be sure that I cover bases. He is a relational person. You need to be a relational person. The Apostle Paul is a man of passion. And what I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul, the Jewish man, and what he's saying is, I am, I want my unbelieving Jewish family to come to Jesus. How many of you have unbelieving family members or extended family members? We need to be a body of Christ that's saying, dear Lord Jesus, I want to do everything I can. I want to live the right kind of example. I want to find out the right kind of things so that I can open up doors. I want to connect with my unbelieving family. How many of you have some friends that don't know Jesus? Are you concerned about those friends? Like tonight, there's going to be a cowboy game. Who are you going to watch the cowboy game with? Why don't you watch it with some of your unbelieving neighbors? They think you're a little bit weird because you, you went to church this morning while they slept in and read the Dallas Morning News. The only way they're going to find out that you're really not so weird is if you connect with them. And I want to be a pastor teacher that tells you you need to connect with unbelieving people because you love them and you desperately want them to come to Jesus because that's the heart that Paul had. And listen, the people that he had the heart for, they hated him a lot of times. They rejected him. They ultimately are going to put him in prison and try him before Nero. And he's still saying, my heart is broken every single day. And I just want to share with you, in studying this passage, I have to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, give me that kind of a heart for unbelieving people because I don't have that in my own strength. I get angry with unbelieving people. I can feel, to you know what with you. If you're going to believe that, if you're going to think that, if you're going to be that dumb, go ahead. That's wrong. That's wrong. And that's one thing that's wrong. That's why we're not reaching out too well with unbelievers 
And it's why Paul reached out so well to unbelievers because your unbelieving friends know what your heart is. They know what you really believe. And what the Apostle Paul realized is, I've met this incredible Savior. I've met this incredible Savior, and my own people have missed him. And it's tragic that they have, and I grieve, and I sorrow. And Paul even says, like Moses, after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 32, when the children of Israel, when Moses was up on the mountain, remember they worshipped the golden calf and they had a really wild party and they were immoral and they got drunk and Moses came down and it was furious and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses says, no, God, don't wipe them all out because I'll go to hell. Moses says, I'll be cursed, but don't wipe out your people. Now that's the kind of passion that the real God of the universe creates for others, for your kids, for your wife, for your husband for people that don't know Jesus. And that's kind of passion I want Midlothian Bible Church, and I want all believers that hear me ever to teach. I want you to have that kind of passion for Jewish people and for all the unbelievers that you meet that might not know Jesus yet. The Apostle Paul is saying, I want my unbelieving Jewish relatives and my family and my brothers to come to know Jesus. Now he tells us, what's the great advantage? What have the Jewish people done for you that you should love them so much? What is the great advantage that they have? And the Apostle Paul lays out a list here that's just incredible, and he assumes that you would know this list. Let's look at it. It says, it says I wish for Christ's sake that my own brothers, I would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. First of all, he called them the people of Israel. He's an insider. You need to understand, first of all, if you read your Old Testament story, Jacob means the heel. And I think it goes to, like, I used to play this game when I was a little kid that I'd walk behind somebody, and when they put their leg out, I'd kick their leg out, and it would catch their heel and would trip him. Anybody ever done that? Confess, 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 okay? If you catch someone's heel, they trip. Yaakov in Hebrew means the heel. And if you study the, the early part of Jacob's life, he likes to trick people up, you know, trip them up. Esau, his brother, he, he lies, pretends he's Esau. He gets the blessing. With Laban, he and Laban, you have this war going on between these two heels, these two tricksters. But before Jacob goes back to meet his brother Esau, when he thinks Esau's going to kill him, he sends all of his family across the river with all of his servants, and he waits behind in the river Yabbok. And at the river Yabbok, he meets God himself. He wrestles, I believe, probably with the second person of the Trinity. And he hangs on as dawn comes, and he won't let, he won't let God go. He said, you're going to bless me. And God says, your name has been healed all your life. You're now going to be the prince, my prince. You're going to be a prince. And your name's going to be Yitzrael. It's going to be Israel. And from then on, Yaakov, the heel, became the prince of God. As Judaism developed, Jews would use, Jews come from Judah. So like during the intertestamental period in their dealing, because a lot of the other tribes apparently looked like they'd been wiped out. They really hadn't because the book of Revelation says God keeps track of his own. But the Judah tribe became the dominant tribe so that Gentile people called them the Judahites, the Jews. And that's the term that the Jews use when they're talking to Gentiles about Judaism and about being Jewish. But when they're among their own people, they talk about the Israelites because it speaks about this special privileged position that God chose one of their patriarchs, Jacob, 
to carry out the promises that were made to Isaac, his father, to carry out the promises made to Abraham, his grandfather. And so Paul is saying, my people had this incredible blessing. They were the ones that God chose us to be the princess. And ultimately, the Bible says that it's going to be the Jewish nation that rules over the nations as they respond to the Messiah. And it's going to bring blessing to all the world. The next thing the Apostle Paul said that they received an advantage is that they're only Israelite, but they received the adoption of sons. As creator, God is the father of us all. But God does not claim that every single human being is related to him as a father and a son and daughter. God said, like when Pharaoh in Exodus, early in Exodus, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is throwing baby Israelite boys into the Nile and drowning them. And God says, Moses, you need to go down because Israel's my firstborn. And the king of Pharaoh might think he rules the world, but he doesn't. I rule the world, and you throw my baby sons into the river, and you're going to face the justice of a righteous, holy father. And he calls Israel in the early chapter of Exodus, Israel is my son. That means that God chose to directly relate to this nation. The almighty God of creation, the one of Genesis 1 and 2 is saying, I focus especially on these people. These are the people that I have a family relationship with them. And so if you want to get to know who the living God of the universe is, if you want to know what God is really like, these are the people that God chose to relate to as his family and call them his sons and daughters. That was a great privilege. And it was meant to be a privilege that as God worked among his children of Israel, then they became a magnet that drew the rest of the world to worship the Lord. That's what the Old Testament was about. The next advantage that the Jewish people had, not only that they were the adopted as God's sons, they also experienced a divine glory. You're going to be taught that nobody ever knows what God, who knows what's out there? Like, who knows? Maybe we can find some intelligent beings that are out there. What the Bible says is, no, that's not really true. The Bible's saying that from the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden, throughout the Noahic period, ultimately in Abraham, and then when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt and he delivered them through the Red Sea in a big, public, mighty miracle, and then he took them down to Mount Sinai, what the Bible claims is that the almighty God of the universe hasn't been silent he has spoken loud and clearly, and he's also revealed his incredible glory. So what happened on Mount Sinai is the light of God's radiating presence would come down upon that mountain, and it would drive people to their face. And the whole book of Exodus is the people, the latter part of it is getting the tabernacle built. And when the tabernacle is built, the glory of the Lord descends on the tabernacle. Later on, when Solomon builds a temple to the Lord and they have this big dedication, God ends the whole worship time by driving everyone to their knees because the glory of the Lord descends upon the temple. You live in a world where the God who is there, the God of creation, has not been silent. He has chosen specific people. He has spoken to them and he actually came and lived among them in the Old Testament. That was an incredible privilege. They had, like with the children of Israel, if you, if you talked to an Israelite during the wilderness period, you would say, well, how do you know where to go in the wilderness? They would say, well, at night we look at this incredible glowing, it's like a great glowing furnace. And it, in the daytime it looks kind of like a cloud. And when it moves, we move. And then you say, well, what is that? 
and said, well, that's the radiating, majestic presence of God. He lives right in the heart of our camp. So a Jewish person in the Old Testament, an Israelite in the Old Testament, they had this incredible gift. The divine glory was living in their midst. One of the things that happened when Nebuchadnezzar came and was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel the prophet says that he saw the Shekinah glory lift out of the Holy of Holies and it left Israel. And that led the big question, well, where's the glory of God now? Where is God tenting among his people? And Paul's going to talk about this at the conclusion of the passage. He talked about how God didn't just abandon his people, how God, even after the Babylonian captivity, didn't remove his glory forever. Notice what it says, that they received the divine glory. The next thing they received is the covenants. What are some of the covenants? Name some of the covenants that God made with Israel quickly. Abrahamic, that's the first one. Genesis 12, 15, 17 repeats it. Okay, good. What's, that? What's another covenant that God made? The Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, they received the law. That's another major covenant. Great. What's another covenant? The Davidic Covenant. Great. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Abrahamic Covenant is the one that promises Abraham, it's going to be through your people that the promise in Genesis 3.15, the great serpent slayer, the seed, the male child that's going to be born is going to come and he's going to be a son of Abraham. And Paul's going to later on this passage going to show that it needs to be a specific son that comes through the line of Isaac, not through the line of Ishmael. And Paul's going to talk about that. And the next time we get together, we'll look at that. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. God repeats the Abrahamic covenant several times to Abraham in his life. So if you read Genesis, you say, well, Dave, I don't know anything about the Abrahamic covenant. Well, you need to just go back and read the book of Genesis, and you'll find out that God promises that the deliverer of the Messiah will come through the Abrahamic line. You'll also find out that God's going to give Abraham the land of Israel when they really respond to the Messiah and when they really have a changed heart, and they're not there yet. So that's why we're still in tremendous conflict. And thirdly, that through that Messiah, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So God's heart from the very beginning is to reach all of your friends and to reach all different populations and all different language groups, all the nations of the world. He wants to reach the scattered nations of the world. So you have a Messiah that has a heart for all the different people in the world. He wants to use his chosen people to reach out to them. That's reaffirmed. Sinai introduces this covenant of law that God makes with the Israelites, and we've learned in the book of Romans that God gave that law to drive his people to admit their sin so that they would realize that they needed to go back to the promise of grace that was made to Abraham, that they needed to be saved, not by thinking they could obey all this law, but by believing the Lord. And Paul's been developing those ideas for us. King David, a lot of you mentioned the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God gives this incredible promise to David. He says, David, the great king that's going to come, the great ruler of the nations, also the one that's going to provide the way that you were forgiven when you prayed in Psalm 51. It's going to come through your line. And that's why Matthew and Luke are so careful to root the line of the Messiah in King David's family. You should be able to put the Old Testament together based upon God's covenants, because they're your covenants. We've learned in the book of Romans, you've been grafted in. You become a son and daughter of God. You are now the recipients of these incredible covenants that God made, and we must never forget that God chose the Jewish people to give us those covenants. He says theirs was the receiving the law. You mentioned Mount Sinai, the temple worship. Paul doesn't view the law and the temple worship as being a negative thing. It was supposed to be used for the Lord, 
And then it culminates in from you the promises. That goes back to what I shared, how the promise of the great serpent slayer. And we can also add all the promises the prophets give us, like of a new heaven and new earth and a time when, when we'll beat our swords into plowshares. All those great promises that even secular people grab a hold of. They come from the Jewish prophets, that there's going to be a new day and a new time, and God's going to put away death and all those incredible promises the Lord has given us. But the greatest thing of all that culminates, the greatest advantage the Jews have, is from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Jews should not only be for Jesus, but Jesus is for Jews because he was Jewish. Your Savior is Jewish. Mary was Jewish. His stepfather, Joseph, was Jewish. His whole line is Jewish. He spent his whole ministry ministering to Jewish people. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you must never separate Jesus from Jewish people because you'll lose all that the gospel's about. It's very, very wrong, and something's gone really amok when we don't see, well, the Old Testament's important because it's the foundation that leads me to the Messiah, and then the New Testament fills in the culmination of those promises. It all goes together. You see how Paul has built that? He says that the human ancestry of Christ is, goes right back to one of Paul's brethren, a Jew. And then he says, incredibly, he ends up by saying, and this Messiah who is God over all, forever praise, amen. If I'm in Israel and we have a Shabbat meal, they say, blessed be God, the maker of heaven and earth, who gives us the wine, Barakai Elohim. They say, blessed be God. It's the way that a Jew closes. Paul does something really interesting. There's a debate about the passage, and what I want you to know is like Titus 2.13, Paul very clearly says, and God, our Redeemer, is going to come back. So Paul's not ashamed at all to call his Savior Jesus God. I believe that the clearest way to get this passage is that Paul culminated down by showing how all these blessings came, but the ultimate blessing was God gave his Messiah, and his Messiah was not only, according to his human ancestry, a Jew that was from Abraham, that was from David, but Jesus was also God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's John's way to say what Paul's saying here. God didn't take away His glory forever. When God took the glory out of the temple, and all the people were to come to the temple, and they could see God's presence, God loved the world so much that He sent His Son, born of a Jewish mother, humanly a Jew, but he was also God, the one who will be blessed forever. That's why I worship Jesus. That's why we just sang to him. That's why the world needs to know about him. What I wanted to do is close is, why do you raise your hand and say, I've got an unbelieving friend that doesn't know Jesus or an unbelieving family member? Paul began this passion by saying, I want to have a passion. I would be cursed for my people. And one of my prayers since I've been studying Paul this week is, Lord, give me that kind of a heart for unbelieving people. Like, I can think of three Israeli guys that I know really well. Two of them have been guys that have been my guides in Israel, and one of them is a close friend. And they don't know Jesus is the Messiah yet. And to be honest with you, a lot of times I just forget about it for weeks on end. And so I've been convicted. Dave, don't do that. The Apostle Paul showed you need to have anguish in your heart. You need to have a passion. You need to keep talking to me. You need to ask the Lord to open the hearts 
of the Jewish people that you know, of unbelieving people, because whether they're Jewish unbelievers or Gentile unbelievers, we're all in the same boat till we hear God's voice and we respond to him. We're going to learn that our salvation totally depends upon God's voice. But until we go home, we don't know who God's called and who he hasn't. And so what we want to do throughout this whole passage is we want to keep a tremendous passion that anyone who believes in Jesus will be born into God's family. We also need to have tremendous, powerful confidence that as we present the gospel, it's going to be effective because those that God has called are going to respond. Father, use today's message to protect my brethren and sisters from even one little tiny speck of anti-Semiticism. I'd also pray that your spirit would help them to clearly understand who Jesus is. And I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help your Jewish people to be born into your family and that you would begin to do what you say you're going to do in Romans 11. I pray that you would begin to turn the heart of your people in a majority way to open their hearts to your son. Lord, I pray that your spirit would create in us the same incredible passion to see unbelievers saved and help our unbelieving friends to see real care in our hearts and real sorrow in our hearts because they haven't responded to Jesus yet so that they'll see that incredible, merciful, compassionate love that you have for the lost that's recreated in us as your children today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.